Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. We have a guest today, and uh, he's a very, very interesting man. Hope you all stay tuned. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Our guest is Dr. Joseph Schumann. He is, um, well, he, I went to a lecture the other day at the Ethical Culture Society uh, in Manhattan, and Dr. Schumann delivered an, an astounding, passionate talk about the uh, frightening rejection of science and even objective truth in America today and the threat that this presents to um, the continued existence of democracy, let alone our entire culture. Um, Dr. Schumann, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let me uh, introduce you somewhat to the, uh, to the listeners, and then we can um, proceed with our examination, which we hope is not um, an autopsy, but, uh, you know, 
we still have life in the democracy yet, and we're gonna we're gonna look for that as we go on. Dr. Schumann has been. Uh, it says here the leader. Is it a leader or the leader of the Ethical Culture Society of Bergen County? Uh, I'm the leader in Bergen County, okay. but I'm also a part-time leader at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Okay, and um, you know, this is Bergen County, New Jersey, since 1974, and since 2008 has served as a part-time leader of the uh, New York Society for Ethical Culture. As an activist, Dr. Schumann has worked on behalf of human rights, civil liberties, and in opposition to the death penalty, as well as many other progressive causes. He founded the Northern, Jersey, Northern New Jersey group of Amnesty International in 1974 and currently serves as president of the Bergen County Sanctuary for Asylum Seekers. And what's that? Well, it's actually the Northern New Jersey Coalition because we've expanded. Ah. It's a human rights and humanitarian organization that provides a total and comprehensive range of humanitarian services, including housing, for uh, political asylum seekers in our area. Okay. And um, <clears throat> Dr. Schumann also teaches human rights at the graduate level at Columbia University, and he is the author of the book, Speaking of Ethics. Ethics, <laughs> a, lo a, lost, uh, a lost subject, a lost art, a lost practice, right? Sort of. <laughs> well, I think we need more of it, especially yeah. in the age of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's a compilation of essays and talks on the application of humanistic ethics to public and private issues. And the name of this talk is, uh, the talk that he gave is called, If We Reject Science, It's Over. And this is a talk delivered, uh, as I say, at the New York Society for Ethical Culture just this past Sunday. And let me just start off with the first few sentences of, uh, this is an article you wrote, um, I think, for the Bergen County uh, society. And, uh, but uh, the, the talk you gave sort of follows along these lines. Has America lost its mind? With Donald Trump as our leader and the world's most powerful man, it feels as if we had entered the kingdom of madness. With Trump has come validation of alternative facts, the shameless promulgation of lies, a startling indifference to truth. But Trump is not an isolated phenomenon. Rather, he is the culmination and the most salient example of social, political, and economic trends that have been gestating in American life for half a century. The first question I wanted to ask you was, uh, and you started off your talk the other day with this, um, the percentage, these alarming percentages of Americans who believe in various mythologies. Maybe you could go over that a little bit. Well, yeah, no, I really quite find it quite startling, in fact, so startling that it stretches my credulity from time to time. But one reads uh, from various sources, including public opinion polls, the astounding number of Americans who hold beliefs that are thoroughly counterfactual, um, uh, you know, ranging from conspiracy theories to alien abductions to the anti-vaccine movement to uh, the percentage of uh, Americans, particularly Republicans, who still believe Barack Obama was not born in the United States, uh, the percentage of a number of Americans who believe in ghosts, uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans who deny uh, the theory of evolution, which is the bedrock of the biological sciences. And we could go on and on in terms of the embrace of fanta fantastic ideas uh, held to be true 
but uh, basically uh, are unsupported by any empirical evidence. And uh, this phenomenon in American life seems to be growing, and it's, it's very troubling. And as you pointed out in the introduction, it's my thought and the thought of others that it jeopardizes um, the stability and vitality of our democratic form of government. Um, well... Yes, it does. And I, I just read something, speaking of a percentage of Americans, I read something yesterday that, um, that, uh, the, that something like 47% of the American population uh, gets its news from sources like Fox News and other talk radio uh, outlets. And uh, they continue to believe whatever they hear on there. And this is a huge percentage of the American public. Um, I guess you, you would include uh, this idea of... Uh, wanting to include, quote-unquote, creation science along with evolution and being taught in public schools in various places, right? Well, of course, that's a movement. Um, I mean, if we're looking for underlying causes for the development of unreason mm -hmm. in American life, certainly one of the major factors has been the entree of uh, evangelical and particularly fundamentalist forms of religion, I'm thinking here, of course, of Protestantism, uh, onto the political scene in American life uh, in the late 1970s, starting with the moral majority. Um, to make a long story short, I mean, evangelicalism flourished uh, in the 19th century and in many ways was politically progressive. Uh, the abolitionist movement uh, was, uh, had a strong following in abolitionist circles. The temperance movement, which we tend to think of as, as conservative, was seen in those days as being progressive and supported by, um, by evangelicals. And then with the Scopes trial in uh, the famous monkey trial mm -hmm. in Dayton, Tennessee in the 1920s, uh, the, uh, really the evangelical subculture was subjected to so much ridicule that it became apolitical. It, in a sense, went politically underground. And the general position of the evangelical movement was that involvement in secular politics uh, was to was in a way the uh, was to be avoided. Uh, it defiled um, religious values and sensibilities. But that changed again in the late 1970s with the emergence of the moral majority uh, in Jerry Falwell, where the evangelical movement re-entered uh, American politics, has shifted American, uh, you know, the politics far to the right. Uh, has been very influential, and what you see again is the reentry of uh, all types of uh, religiously based ideas that uh, are in many ways opposed to the deliverances of, of modern science, and creationism is, is certainly uh, among the most salient of these religious ideas, which uh, threatens and challenges uh, the theory of evolution. Well, now, things don't happen in a vacuum, and as you mentioned in your talk, and uh, you quoted uh, Kurt Anderson, uh, there, was, uh, there were various developments in the country starting in the 1960s that, uh, that prepared uh, the groundwork or that flowed together with this. But before I ask you about that, um, I wanted to uh, mention that I once uh, on another radio station interviewed the public relations director of the Creation Museum. And... Um, 
aside from now the creation museum features many things but it's a blend of religion they have dioramas there like you know museums do you're right and they have uh it's a blend of religious uh, dioramas you know there's jesus mary uh joseph and uh, other religious uh, dioramas and also then they have the uh children playing with baby dinosaurs and right. um and there's a little quote on the Creation Science uh, Creation Museum uh, website. Let me just read you this. Creationists love science. In fact, the word science means knowledge. We invite you to dive into the Bible and the scientific evidence with us to gather as much knowledge about God's creation as you can. You'll learn about the different types of science and discover facts and logical arguments you might have never considered when you start with the Bible as your ultimate authority, you're ready to discover creation science. And, um, right. There you go. I mean, it says, it says uh, you'll learn about the different types of science. There's, right. <laughs> there's right. different science on the moon. But yeah, uh, that's right. Kurt Anderson was saying, uh, and uh, you elaborated on this, maybe you could do it again, um, that um, you, uh, it says here, Kurt Anderson traces the genealogy of America's descent into irrationality. And the starting points, he contends, were elements of the 1960s counterculture. Well, that's true. Well, he had actually written an article for The Atlantic that appeared two months ago. It was the cover story on how America went haywire. And the, um, the article really is, includes excerpts from the latter part of his book, which has just come out called Fantasyland, which is a large survey of American irrationality starting all the way back at the founding of um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony by the Pilgrims and also the settlement of Virginia. But the article really focuses on uh, more recent decades. And it does start with the 1960s. And uh, I, I should say up front that uh, I'm working my way through his book. And although it's a very fascinating, interesting, and I would argue very important read, uh, I, I have to um, say I don't agree uh, exclusively with his analysis. I have some problems with it. The book seems to cherry pick a lot of things and mm -hmm. uh, basically leaves behind much of the a broader context in which there have been certainly rational and scientific and secular trends in American society, which he doesn't include, but, but he's but trying now, to build a thesis. Uh, but but um, you were, you were uh, just to interject something personally, I mean, you were, I mean, I'm of that age. Uh, are you? I mean, you know, the 60s age. Well, yes, that's yeah. right. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a baby boomer and mm -hmm. uh, really came of age, grew up in the 1950s, and then, uh, you know, was very much part of the counterculture. Right of the 1960s, mostly in the political anti-war, uh, you know, sector of the counterculture movement, not so much the, you know, the drugs and rock and roll and right. uh, the New Age elements, which he really focuses on. And um, it, his analysis, which I think is interesting, and anyone who, again, wants to maintain an open mind and look at facts, has to look at, you know, his, his thesis critically, um, he basically uh, looks at the 1960s counterculture as having inaugurated the current uh, contemporary phase of irrationalism in American life. And, for example, he spends a considerable amount of time talking about Esalen Institute in California, uh, which became a, you know, a mecca for many seeking alternative uh, therapies. Uh, and with it came alternative worldviews, 
that promoted, uh, very much influenced by the popularization of Eastern religion uh, and sort of therapies that he feels were, correctly so, were not scientifically based and mm-hmm. uh, introduced uh, really fantastic ideas to a large segment of that, of that age group, which was mine at that period of time. He also looks at Charles Reich's The Greening of America, and I think people of our age probably remember that book. Uh, he states that it sold over two million copies. I remember reading it myself, and he feels that that um, things like Reich's, Reich's treatise, uh, uh, the Esalen Institute, and related. Well, maybe uh, let me stop you for sort of new age. Let me just complete yeah. the thought. Uh, basically, introduced new age thinking, which are thoroughly thoroughly unscientific, very woolly, and really dull one's critical faculties, and uh, played a, a, a pivotal role in undermining a commitment to empiricism, uh, critical thought, and undermined the legitimacy of a scientific worldview. So maybe you could explain some of Reich's uh, theories and uh, and because people may not remember or may not have well, read the book. Well, you know, I'm not sure I, I can recall everything either. It's a long time ago. We're well, talking about 50, almost 50 years ago since I read the book. But he talks about various forms of consciousness. I remember consciousness one, consciousness two, and consciousness three, which is the consciousness that really is spawning what he believed is a coming utopia that had great appeal to young people of that age. And uh, consciousness one is staid establishment consciousness that is uh, fomented by the corporate state, uh, which has a, a hegemonic role in uh, forming values and uh, the minds of, of Americans. And there's a conspiratorial dimension to it. And as we move uh, through various levels of consciousness, we arise, arrive at consciousness three, which is a type of new age sensibility, appear appealing to hip to people of sort of who might identify themselves as hippies uh, and so forth. That have to do as 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 uh, Kurt Anderson sort of summarizes it. Uh, you know, one had to, one could dress dress down, okay, and smoke a lot of pot, mm-hmm. and you were entering sort of the new utopia, which again was counterposed against uh, establishment values that issued from the corporate state. The, the, uh, the dawn, yeah. right? That's basically what I mean. I hope I hope I'm doing justice to Reich's theory. Obviously, this yeah. is a, you know an extensive treatise, but that was the direction in which he was moving, and. Again, it was it's Kurt Anderson's view that Charles Reich played a disproportionately uh, powerful role in generating a type of uh, outlook that undermined again a critical thinking and empiric- uh, a commitment to empiricism, and with it undermined and weakened uh, a commitment to science. You know, this is. Um um, I'm sure all it makes perfect sense to me, but there's a lot of people who were growing up then who were uh, turning their backs on, quote unquote, the establishment, uh, turning their backs on, uh, you know, government, uh, you know, issued, uh, you know, ideas and uh, and presentations of, of things. Um, they didn't read this book. 
and they never went to Esalen. There, there was almost a larger context. So I mean, remember this because I lived through it. And I was also mostly involved in, um, you know, for various reasons, not too much into the drugs, but heavily into the anti-war stuff. But there is a place where all these things kind of merge in a sort of a, a shapeless boundary, you know, a, a boundaryless place. Uh, because if you were, a, if the government was always telling you all the time, and corporations, corporations were telling you, uh, enjoy these cigarettes, you know, no problem with this car. Corporations were always telling you, advertising. Government was telling you, uh, oh, this is a war against the evil uh, communists, and we can win this one. No problem, Vietnam. If you were saturated with that kind of PR and basically lies, and what they told you were facts, um, and then you discover how, uh, how monstrous these lies were and how, uh, how damaging to everybody... Uh, you had a tendency to kind of want to turn your back. You remember that? Well, absolutely. And certainly I was among those. Um, but, you know, uh, here I have, I have to take some issue with Kurt Anderson's analysis. I think it's both true and false. Uh, the, you know, what we've been talking about certainly suggests a, a tendency, a, a direction of, uh, and certainly a commitment to opposing established ideas, but that doesn't necessarily lead one to a position of irrationalism. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you and I may have been members of the counterculture, but, uh, one can basically, uh, root one's critique of establishment values uh, rooted in a in a in a rational in a rational critique. Uh, one doesn't have to abandon reason. One doesn't have to abandon science in order to oppose what, in effect, is the official line hmm. coming from the corporate state or from government. And indeed, uh, you know, I when I looked at Esalen uh, growing up in New York City, and I looked at Esalen, and I looked at these movements, Esalen in particular, I saw this as being essentially a California phenomenon. Right. Um, right. And I was part of the humanistic psychology movement, but I looked to people like Eric Fromm. Uh, I looked to Abraham Maslow. Uh, I looked even to Albert Ellis and his rational emotive therapy, all of which were rooted, uh, one could argue, somewhat narcissistically, Eric Fromm less so than the others, rooted narcissistically in, in a, an absorption with the self, with the individual, and so on and so forth. But they weren't anti-scientific. I mean, mm -hmm. Maslow rooted his, his own humanistic um, philosophy in a, in a very strong empirical Base so that there were certainly, if you were opposed to the establishment and were looking for new forms of, of self-expression, self-fulfillment, psychology, one did not have to necessarily gravitate towards a new age, mm -hmm. uh, anti-rational, anti-scientific point of view. You could find many uh, psychological uh, exponents. Uh, of new psychologies that, in effect, were not, that were in effect, claimed, and I think legitimately did have more a scientific uh, basis, more grounded in rationality. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I think uh, I accept a great deal of what Anderson is saying. I find it very intriguing, very challenging, but I don't accept it uncritically. Um, uh, further in, in the talk you were giving and in, uh, in this uh, essay you wrote, uh, you're saying that, uh, that part of academia or maybe the upper reaches or very powerful groups in academia uh, played their part in contributing 
to this right. uh, to this, and maybe you could explain this uh, in ways that most people could understand. Well, I, here we get very complex and yeah, I don't arcane. want to bog down. Uh, yeah. And it is true that uh, sometimes what goes on in the ivory tower does trickle down to inform popular values mm-hmm. and attitudes. And uh, starting in the 1960s, you have the emergence of postmodernism, which is what, uh, which is essentially a very influential movement, and uh, it's one again which I, you know, uh, feel has played a, a productive and chastening role in terms of uh, critiquing. Uh, establishment and we might say hegemonic ideas, uh, but I think postmodernism is also highly problematic. Uh, postmodernism uh, is, in great measure, an attack on uh, the Enlightenment, particularly claims of the Enlightenment that speak to uh, truth, that speak to objective, the possibilities of attaining objectivity and objective knowledge Mm -hmm. and so forth. And that critique, I think, is uh, born out of, correctly, a a concern with uh, the effects of uh, imperialism, uh, the role that established ideas have played in and accepted ideas have played in fomenting racism and sexism. And so postmodernism, I think, is born correctly in a rebellion against, uh, the again, the destruction of colonized peoples uh, and is, attempt to, is an attempt to undo uh, the nefarious, oppressive elements uh, of sexism and racism. And so in that sense, it's all to the good. But what it's done is basically uh, attempt to demolish the idea that objective or even striving for objective knowledge is desirable or possible. And what that has led to is a valorization of subjectivity. In other words, for the postmodern, mm-hmm. all knowledge is subjective. And when one predicates ideas and claims that they are objective, it is nothing other than an expression of the power interests of those making those claims. And, and as a In result, other words, for the postmodern, it's subjectivity all the way down. Uh, and then show what that... What, what? You, what you said, what that means is, in short, my truth is as good as yours, right? Exactly right. In other words, it gives rise, Mike, to a type of unfettered relativism, mm-hmm. okay, which undermines when uh, science, uh, which of course speaks to objectivity, right? I mean, the basis of science is that we can claim some objective knowledge about the external world, right? When it's applied to the sciences, uh, I think it can it can be play a very destructive a very destructive role. I should say that postmodernism has had tremendous effect uh, in areas in uh, the liberal arts in terms of literary criticism, interpretations of history, uh, and in the social sciences. And I'm thinking here of sociology and particularly anthropology. I mean, academically speaking, anthropology, I'm not an anthropologist, but Mm -hmm. anthropology is now divided into two camps. Those who, uh, you know, adhere to a classical notion of anthropology, that is, that outsiders can gain some 
objective knowledge about cultures not their own through mm-hmm. studying them meticulously, and others who say that that enterprise is is simply not possible. That that type of objectivity is not is is not possible because whatever conclusions are reached are going to necessarily reflect the subjective interests of those making drawing those conclusions. Um, well, let, uh, let, let but, me. I should say, let me just to complete well, we should move on. Yeah. that, to my knowledge, hard scientists, and we're talking here about physicists and chemists, astronomers and so forth, really do not take postmodernism very seriously. In other words, uh, they, uh, they adhere to the notion, I think correctly, that there is an object, objective reality that exists independent of human wishes, uh, social constructions, and so on and so forth, and that we can gain some handle, some useful knowledge about the outside world. But postmodernism has played a role in in undermining confidence uh, in the sciences through a commitment to subjectivity and to relativity and, how, and the notion that anyone's ideas and opinions are as good as anyone else's. Well, this is how you wind up with alternative facts. I think you quoted in, in your talk uh, Senator Moynihan from New York State who said, right, uh, right. said that uh, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but not everybody's entitled to their facts. That's But here's something I want to read, um, and maybe you could talk about this, because uh, in this case... Um, Anyhow, let me see. This this subjective move opens the door to proliferating assertions of truth, one expression of which is the validation of conspiratorial causes for events that had previously been considered settled. If one truth is as good as another, why not believe that the Kennedy assassination went beyond the sole assassin, or that the 9-11 assault was secretly engineered by the U.S. government, or Jewish bankers, uh, poor old Jewish bankers, are plotting to take over the world. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people I've talked to who are perfectly um, rational about everything else do believe in, in these conspiracies. So it's not just on the right wing or anything. And think of Hillary Clinton talking about a vast right wing conspiracy. Did you, did you read Jane um, Meyer or Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money? No, I haven't read that yet. But no, uh, it's, an, yep. it's an amazing journalistic uh, exploration and you know, the depth and the width of exactly this kind of, um, of vast, literally right-wing conspiracy uh, engineered more or less by the Koch brothers, but with a lot of other billionaires involved who met frequently and then established hundreds and hundreds of quote-unquote think tanks and university science departments and university political departments all of which dedicated to um, to dragging the country into sort of uh, a, gil- a gilded age, uh, you know, sure. uh, state. Well, that's true. I think that, you know, I mean, conspiracies do exist, right? Yeah. The question is using one's critical faculties to discern uh, which, uh, which conspiracies, in effect, are real and which are, uh, which are imaginary. Mm-hmm. And the problem we're talking about is not unearthing real conspiracies, which we need to be concerned about, but indeed mistaken one's feelings and opinions and half-baked ideas for uh, reality uh, when we're talking about when we're talking about conspiracies. Um, this is something that Kurt Anderson looks at, and I think it, it does have a lot of credence, a lot of credibility. Um, and it goes back to the 1960s. I'm old enough to remember, and perhaps you are too, mm-hmm. the John Birch Society. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, which is uh, was uh, you know really 
emerged in the late 50s and uh, 1960s and uh, generated on the right, uh, generated a whole range of uh, conspiratorial notions that are uh, with regard to um, communism. Now, clearly, communism and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union during the Cold War was poised against uh, the United States and American interests. Uh, but the John Birch Society saw a communist in the United States, saw a communist uh, under every tree, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where um, uh, they claimed that Dwight Eisenhower was a, right was really a communist spy right and so forth and uh you know reaching uh levels of of just absolute absurdity um and yet and they had a lot of influence ways, they had know, a lot of influence what they had a lot of influence on on a, on a large group of people though yes they they certainly did and it's kurt anderson's thesis that you can draw a line uh, from the John Birch Society to the conspiratorial mindset of Donald Trump, and it's his view, and I think he's correct about this. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have cons- when we talk about conspiracies about the Kennedy assassination around that time, that was not the province or the possession of the right wing, but his notion is that the right has certainly un- uh, outdone the left in spades when it comes to when it comes to conspiracies well that may very well do with some things we've just been talking about is that because there's so much connection not necessarily uh, direct connection but there's so much merging of the fundamentalism uh, and uh, the Christian fundamentalism uh, of uh, of a large part of the country uh, which is very strong and got strong well, yes yeah. I really do think that again as I'm saying that the emergence of of Christian fundamentalism and its irrationality has uh, been a very powerful influence with regard to the culture as a whole in terms of uh, undermining the authority of facts, uh, the test of evidence, and of science. Now, now we, uh, when you were speaking before of, uh, of uh, lunatic ideas or conspiracies or any kind of crazy notion spreading rapidly, it's, uh, <laughs> it brings us right to the Internet. And you've written about that in other essays, too. And um, let's see. I'm going to quote a little bit here. In the, oh, by the way, if you're, if you're just tuning in or you're wondering, you're listening to Dr. Joseph Schumann, who is uh, the leader of the uh, uh, Ethical Culture Society of Bergen County and um, uh, a teacher at Columbia and an author, and uh, we'll get to more of that later. You say, and then there's the Internet. In the pre-digital age, individuals committed to counterfactual ideas, alternative facts, lurked in the corners. Finding allies was difficult and kept in check. Today, any crackpot with a computer can espouse his or her extremist and irrational theories and instantly find and mobilize innumerable like-minded followers. How true. And then, just to add to that, um, uh, you say uh, that, uh, and this is my experience, too, going on the Internet, maybe, you know, because I'm old, but I don't think so. Um, there There is only now. There is no past. There's no context. There's only now. Like when you go on the computer to check something, it'll say two minutes ago, half an hour ago, and anything. Right. And when you talk to people, especially under the age of 40, and you know, here we are, I hope we're not being like, you know, old farts. But when you talk to people under the age of 40, or especially under the age of 30, 
and you talk to them about something that happened yesterday or the day before or, you know, God forbid, 10 years ago or 50 years ago <laughs> that, that created where we are now, right? Every tree right. has its roots. Uh, right. They say, what? They have no idea what it is. What just happened two seconds ago is real. Everything else is not. Right. So. Well, I think you're, you're saying I, I totally agree with your concern and your analysis. I think you're saying two things. Um, one is that the, the Internet is a phenomenal tool. It's a transformational tool that is, uh, in its uh, wizardry, is just absolutely extraordinary. And the technology of it, of course, is a source of, of, of fascination to countless numbers of people, as it should be. And the Internet, internet, of course, used productively, and I do use it, as we all do, mm -hmm. is a tremendous informational tool. Uh, and it's an amazing organizing tool. But that very powerful organization has, as you're pointing out, Mike, has a very dark underside in the sense that um, it enables anyone with an Internet connection uh, to basically speak uh, and develop uh, innumerable, perhaps millions of followers for any uh, crackpot nutty idea uh, almost instantaneously. It would have been very difficult to do in the 1950s and 60s. You'd have to sort of lurk around quietly to try to find allies. Now mm -hmm. you can produce them almost immediately uh, through the Internet. And isn't there a paradox here that uh, the Internet has really opened up uh, a huge number of sources of information uh, with regard to what's going on in the world, with regard to news, current events, and so forth. And yet what's happened is, seems to be just the opposite. What it's done is it is uh, siloed knowledge, and it's actually intensified uh, uh, extremity and extreme points of view. Rather than proliferating and opening up people to alternative knowledge, what it's done is it's really encouraged people to seek out that information that reconfirms their own perspectives, their own biases. Hmm. And so it, in effect, has, has intensified, as I'm saying, um, extremism rather than broadening it, which is, a, I think, a very unfortunate paradox uh, of the Internet. But you raise another point that's very, very important. Um, the uh, problem with the Internet is that there is no editor. It doesn't, information on the Internet doesn't go through any review process. Mm -hmm. There are no checks. There's no editorial function there. Everything you get is totally unfiltered. Uh, there's no fact-checking. Uh, it's just opinions and thoughts uh, here, there, and everywhere that someone can pick up and, in effect, um, take to heart as, as being truthful. And, as you're pointing out, there is no historical context. Uh, everything is in the moment. And uh, this does reveal my age, and it is in effect, um, you know, uh, one could sort of uh, be tempted to dismiss it as a form of old fogeyism, but uh, I'm of the school that if you really want to know something, okay, and uh, knowledge is for me a highly cherished uh, value, mm -hmm. that you really have to read books. <laughs> right? You can't be a well-informed person through sound bites. Uh, if you really want to know something, Mike, you only can know it if you understand its context. 
if you under if you hold an idea outside of its context historical intellectual and otherwise you really don't know it at all well even and even, i think the internet generates that sort of superficiality oh yeah that is devoid of context and therefore thins out one's knowledge, uh, as well as, as we're saying, and this is really the gist of our conversation, undermines one's commitment uh, to critical faculties and critical thinking. You know, I, I completely agree with you, and I think uh, one of the things that affects is psychology, uh, personal growth, and I don't mean that in some superficial way, but the idea of just um, of acting in a certain way and then you'll be different or just changing yourself without knowing where you come from, what happened to you. I mean, you can overdo anything, of course. You know, uh, People have been in analysis for 20 years or whatever, but uh, an analysis is already like, you know, on its way out, on its last legs. But the idea of examining yourself in the context of uh, your childhood, your family, uh, the society that you grew up in, the neighborhood you grew up in, these things, if you try to, I think if you try to, uh, and I'm speaking from some experience, if you try to de- develop yourself or you try to become somebody better or more progressive within your own self, how could you possibly do that uh, without examining your past? And the other thing I want to say is all the things you just said, uh, and right down to the idea of tweets and tweeting, which is what birds do, essentially, bird brains, um, you have Donald Trump as the perfect exemplar, the perfect symbol. He's like the holograph of, of this superficial, narcissistic, witless, contextless modern age, I think. Well, I think that's very well said. I mean, he's a thoroughly uh, ignorant and unknowing and unhistorical figure. I mean, this is a man who has never, in effect, um, demonstrated any commitment to civic organization, to civic values, uh, to an understanding of, uh, of American history or even the history of the presidency and its, and its protocols. I mean, he is, as pointed out, and we don't have to belabor it, uh, it's all around us and self-evident. He's an unbridled narcissist uh, who thinks he knows it all when he knows nothing and thoroughly uprooted from a from uh, any uh, sobering context whatsoever. And people, uh, people who know him and somebody who wrote a biography of him said they have never seen him pick up a book, ever. Yes, that's true. Yes, yeah. I've, I've heard that. That's probably, that's probably true. And, of course, uh, people have said that when he gets his daily briefings, it has to be done with diagrams and cartoons. That's a whole other program. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, yet he, and yet he has uh, tens of millions of, of followers, all of whom pay no attention to his contradictions, to his lack of uh, context. Yeah. To, you know. Let me move on. To get back to the original uh, topic here. You say, in the age of Trump, belief in science has fallen into the murky swamp of relativism. And this is most ominous. It's a threat to the future of human civilization that ought to gravely right. concern us. So it's not just American democracy or culture. No, I think it, it goes beyond that. I mean, clearly, the modern world is built on, on science. Um, and if we lose, I mean, this is my thesis in, in the talk that I gave that you referenced, that uh, if we lose uh, a, uh, our commitment 
to the authority of science uh, that indeed the project of civilization effectively is over. Uh, the modern world is built on a scientific paradigm, on a scientific structure, on scientific knowledge. And if that is undermined, the project, again, of civilization really can't endure. Uh, and science can be misused. But, uh, I mean, there's a whole lot more here. But um, I really appreciate uh, your coming on and talking about this stuff. Uh, you know, obviously, we're talking, of, we're hoping, and I'd like to hear your expressions of uh, maybe at the end here, um, some sort of hope. Because you see this is sort of overwhelming, and it almost looks like it's getting worse all the time. And here's yeah. Trump. But what, what, would you, how, what would you point out as uh, ways that we can hope for better? Or what signs do you see? Well, okay. Uh, this uh, I have to do this. If we're talking about context, I have to get back to origins again. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, and the, the Donald Trump phenomenon and its appeal certainly plays into this, is that so much of our knowledge has become tribalized. Uh, that is, people believe what they believe, not because it meets the test of evidence, because they have subjected it to some critical scrutiny or review. They believe it because they want to fit in with a culture or a subculture that most reflects themselves. Mm -hmm. In other words, we, we have to understand much of the irrationality that is so prevalent in American life in tribalistic terms. Uh, those people who, let's say, support Donald Trump or who are anti-science or believe in counterfactual ideas do so because they want to feel a stronger sense of community, of communion, of togetherness with people like themselves. I mean, reason, uh, Freud once said, reason speaks with a very soft voice. Uh, reason is not a very powerful force in the lives of people generally when we compare it to uh, emotion, uh, and particularly emotions that solidify our, our, our identities because they're reinforced with our communion, through our communion uh, and relatedness to other people who hold similar ideas. Our reason is very readily overwhelmed mm -hmm. by those tribal commitments. And that, in effect, is what we're seeing. Now, uh, you know, many, uh, many put, people put forward the analysis that uh, Trump's um, constituency is comprised of people who... Uh, you know, economically feel themselves left behind, uh, who feel if the door, if they, uh, you know, if they're economically, if they themselves are perhaps not doing economically that badly, they look ahead at their children and they see that the prospects for the next generation are the doors are closed to them economically in an economy that is rapidly changing and leaving them and their children behind. Mm -hmm. Now, if that socio-cultural economic analysis is correct, and I think it has a great deal to say for itself, then to get beyond uh, the, the tribalism of, 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 of contemporary uh, ideologies and ideas is going to require a restructuring of our, of our economy. In other words, we've hmm. got to find hmm. ways of opening those closed doors, of enabling people who feel that they have little hope 
uh, in a better economic future, we need to restructure our economy broadly to open the doors of, of opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, it was Karl Marx who said that if we wish to abolish illusions, we need to abolish the conditions that give rise to illusions. Mm, And although I am not a Marxist, I think there's a great deal of truth in that observation. Um, Many people who engage in these fantastic ideas do so because reality doesn't work for them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we really have to work hard uh, to try to, again, open doors of opportunity so that people feel, at least in the, especially in the economic sphere, that they do have hope that the future is promising for them. And one would, would hope thereby that by doing this, the commitment to uh, holding on to counterfactual ideas would lose its grip. And you see, this is a long term. This is not something to be done next year, next month, or next year. This is a long term American project. And it's very difficult to do. But I think in the final analysis, our hope rests in the ability to transform our economy in a more progressive direction. Okay, I'm glad to hear some hope, and I think you're absolutely right. That's the, the direction we have to go in. Um, <clears throat> you've been listening to Dr. Joseph Schumann, who is, uh, that's S-H, I'm sorry, C-H-U-M-A-N. Yeah, that's correct. Pronounced Schumann. Leader right. of the Ethical Culture Society of Bergen County and the author of Speaking of Ethics. And uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Where can people go if they want to read some of your essays? Well, they can look at my book. Uh, I have a book, Speaking Speaking of Ethics, mm-hmm. which is on Amazon, and it's an effort, as you indicated in the introduction, to take a humanistic uh, philosophical worldview and apply it to issues in both public and, and private life. That, that would be a place to go. Okay. Thanks, for, uh, thanks again for coming on and for sharing your ideas. Thank you. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Anyhow, this, is, uh, this has been and still is partially, and I keep trying for it to be, Mike Fader. And um, uh, I appreciate your listening today. If you want to uh, comment on the show and you want to uh, get in touch with me for any reason, you can go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R. F-I-L-E-S dot com. F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. Um, let's, uh, you know what, let's hear a little bit of uh, life during wartime. You have that on there? And um, because it's a crazy society we live in and everybody is uh, on the run, everybody's full of conspiracies and everybody's uh, worried and anxious all the time. So um, and out of that, we hope that something uh, more rational and more, con- you know, more, um, I don't know, more together can grow.
Yeah, ain't no party, ain't no disco. But it is a party, it is a disco. Where is rationality? Where is decency? Human decency maybe will rise from this uh, crazy stew, this pit of uh, superficiality and narcissism and ignorance and violence. Uh, all all coming from the top, but uh, fed by this great ignorance of so many people in this country. <clears throat> Hard to imagine, but you can only hope, right? Okay, so uh, again, thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Well, it's all.